Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand. I was going to say side quest, and then I was going to say... Well, first I was going to say side quest, I was going to say fireside chats, but this is actually an episode of Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined today, and you'll be surprised to hear this, by Tom Hanks' understudy in You've Got Mail, Dagan Moriarty. That's correct, actually. How, do, how did you get that gig, anyway? It was... Uh, he just... Uh, Tom took a shining to me. Right, right. And that was the end of it. Right. but And, and obviously, it's... It, some might say it's a little weird to have an understudy in a film, but I. But to me, I'm like, no, yeah. you got it. They were prepared. That was a first. They were pre- they were he prepared. liked me that much. You know, and I got to be honest with you. Anytime I see that movie on TV, I watch it. Now that's a that's a good movie. It it, it is. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a feel good film. It's a place in time movie. Definitely. And what we are going to talk about today is AOL and the early internet, and that is a place in time thing as well. And I'm really excited about this, Dagan. I think I said this. In an earlier episode that we were recording, sequentially, who the fuck knows what order I'm going to put these up in, so you might have already heard it or not, and I don't remember what episode it was, but that I feel like I want to think smaller in some ways about Knockback, get a little more granular. I remember when I said that we were going to do one on The Breakfast Club, for instance, that people were like, are you really going to be able to do a podcast on The Breakfast Club? And we recorded a podcast that is longer than The Breakfast Club. Very, so yes, we can. Yes, we did. So we can we can... So we can get real granular and real philosophical and stuff like that. And, and I also wanted to try to get away from like literal properties, right? Yeah. We, we're going to do many of those still, obviously. That'll but, be a thing, yeah. But I wanted to do like more abstract things as well. And this is a more abstract episode and what I'm super excited about. And the audience is too because we got, you know, maybe like eight questions and comments, nice. concerns, <laughs> nice thoughts and memories for this one from our audience. And we'll get into all of that in a minute. But this is, this is a, I'm excited about this one. I'm interested to see where this one goes. It's a good one. For those of you unaware, Knockback is a retro and nostalgia themed podcast. goes up every week. If you want to support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, we really appreciate that. Not only can your support, depending on your level of support there per month, get you early access one week early, in fact, of every episode of Knockback, plus the eclectic interview series that I do, Fireside Chats and other benefits or whatever, but it allows us to do this show. It allows us to, to travel to see each other, to do the show in person. Some people were a little curious, like, why don't you guys record remotely? And I'm like, do you, and, and just being honest with yourselves, do you really listen to that many podcasts that are good, that are recorded remotely? The answer is no. It's tough. It's tough to pull that off. Even if you got the recording quality right, it's the latency and the conversation. The conversation is not quite as organic. So it's very important to us that we do this in person, even though we have the capability. I bought Dagan all of his own equipment, so... He has the capability of recording here by himself, but we want to do it this way. So we appreciate your support. If you can support us there, if not, and you're listening to the show on the free feeds, that's awesome. We appreciate that as well. Consider leaving us a nice review, a nice score on whatever podcast service you're using, whether it's iTunes, Google Play. That really helps us a lot algorithmically find a new audience, and we appreciate that. Now, Dagan, the early internet. Yes. I think for our younger audience, well, it's funny. I think our audience are going to get multiple different things out of this particular episode, depending on how old they are and their access and their proximity to the internet as time has gone on. 
I think it's important for the younger audience to realize, and they might inherently know this, they might literally know this, but I suspect that they might not know this, that the internet is not only a very recent phenomena in industrial human history, but in terms of its ubiquity, even more recent. And you and I, and especially you, but I was of the last generation, early millennials, and I'm unfortunately a millennial because I was born in 1984, but our generation, I want to say people that were born between... 1982 and like 1986 okay or so are the last group of people that remember what the life life was like before ubiquity of the internet. free internet yeah and i so i lived in both worlds and it's and i've said before to people Dagan, and i don't know if you agree with this that this particular generation is going to be looked back at as a very interesting generation because it is the missing link generation between this digital society that we're never going to escape from now and the analog society that we couldn't even imagine ever living in again it's amazing and having experienced both of it is pretty cool. I suspect it might be a little similar to I've lived in the mid to late 19th century and seeing the rise of steam engines and you were kind of trapped in your farmstead and you were kind of trapped in the, you know, they often said many people never traveled more than 20 miles from their home in early and mid-America, right? Fascinating. I was reading a really interesting story about a guy who fought in, I want to say he fought in, he was at Bunker Hill, so 1775. And he was like a drummer boy, and he was like this really old, old man in the post-Civil War era. And he and they were talking about how he was like a hero, and they were bringing him to Washington, D.C., and he lived in like deep in Maine, and they brought him on a train down, and how revolutionary this was for him to go visit the president. I think it might have been Andrew Johnson at the time. And so it reminds me a little bit of that. But it's more extreme, because now we're a truly global society. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dig, as I usually do, before we get into our conversation, yeah. I want to just set the stage for everybody, if I might. Okay, about sure. what the internet is and who invented it and where it came from and 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 how it kind of sprung into being. Right. And I think a lot of people don't know this. And well, Al Gore invented it. Al Gore didn't invent it, but we're we're, we're not going to get into that. I'm not, <laughs> some of the names and, and things I'm going to tell you are actually made up here because Al Gore, of course, should take credit for <laughs> of course. for inventing the internet. We all know that the internet sprung up, and so a lot of people contest this, but they're wrong. The internet was created by the American government, and it was created in the post-war environment in the late 50s and early 60s. When in academia and in certain parts of the Department of Defense, Department of State, etc., they had these mainframe computers, these large computers. And as a lot of people know, computers back then had no processing power and were gigantic. But the idea of networking them together was a really interesting idea. And this was happening at places like Stanford, Berkeley, MIT, Harvard, etc. And then connected with things in Washington, D.C. and all of that kind of stuff. And this like really does go back to the early, early, early days of the post-war period. The idea of transmitting data and this idea of what's called packet switching was something that we still kind of use today. This idea that we're basically sharing our data and sharing our information with each other on a common architecture. So the computer could read what you're doing and you can read what that computer's doing. And the idea of a, a network that's not closed, but a network that's open. And this this is what created ARPANET and all of these kinds of things, which was funded by the DOD, Advanced Research Projects Agency Network, came together kind of in the late 60s. Now, the interesting thing is, is you still see this, this term called TCP slash IP. This is a thing that you still see today. And it's Transmission Control Protocol slash Internet Protocol. And it's a standard, like I was saying before. It's a standard that people had decided upon in the 60s that was kind of this hypothetical academic exercise that is still true today that lets us read each other's data. So this was set to mainframe computers. And people have to understand, too, that mainframe computers were interface with each other with punch cards and all this arcane shit. In fact, some of the computers didn't even have active memory on them, like things that, like it wouldn't remember anything. You had to program the computer every time you used it. And if you read 
if you if you read about these kinds of things, there was you know this is where time sharing and all this kind of stuff came in. People were desperate to get access to these computers. If you read about the early histories of Bill Gates and and Steve Wozniak and all these guys, they would go use the computers in their facility, their local facilities in the middle of the night and all these kinds of things on a Saturday whenever they can possibly get access to crunch numbers and do all that kind of stuff. And also some nerdy stuff was happening at this time too. This is where Space War came in, which was an early video game that would calculate you right. know trajectories of missiles and stuff like that. So very early nerdy shit obviously was going on there um, as well. Email invented. What what year would you guess that email was invented? See, I would always say when I started a couple of years before I started using it, like 1996, right? But it goes back a few dec, a couple of decades, right? Right. 1972, the first email was sent. Holy moly! And that's the first email. The 72? first email sent. And in fact, there's a story that Queen Elizabeth II, who's still alive today somehow, was sending email, like you know, symbolically sent an email at that time from a facility in the early 70s wow. or whatever, which is pretty cool. And, you know, people, again, were using punch cards and the data was getting bigger. And in the mid 70s, the network growth started to explode. And this is where you got Telenet, which was the first ISP, which is amazing. What year would you think that the first ISP was invented? Hmm. That's Internet Service Provider for people that don't know. I would say around the same time. Yep. 1974. Okay. And these were, these were, you know, this early internet and telenet and all these kinds of things, again, were, were, these, were, these were mainframe computers. The personal computer was not invented until the mid-70s, so, and even then, they didn't necessarily have a monitor and necessarily even a keyboard. So, again, we're talking about academic and government institutions with tons of money and a lot of know-how. Right. These things were not easy to use at all. And they were actually quite arcane and quite complicated to use. And this is where things started to get a little more accessible for people. And it's funny, Dagan, if you go back and... Look on YouTube, and I think I've sent you some of these links over the years. It's funny looking back at these early computer stores, these early hobbyists, etc., and they just predict exactly what happened. Everyone will have a computer on the desk in their house. People were saying this in the mid seventies. It's unfucking thinkable. That's un- unimaginable. There were people that were talking about how, like, yeah, you, you know, things that even seem quaint by today's standards, being like, you can, you know, your fridge will be able to tell you when you have groceries missing, and you'll be able to, and it'll keep track of it, and then it'll tell you on some sort of device in your car or something, and then you can go buy. It. Well, th- th- those. Those fridges exist today. Can you imagine that kind of forward thinking? It's amazing. Like people saw it or people didn't. The people that saw it got extremely rich, by the way, rich. by investing in early Apple, by investing in Intel. There you go. You know, the microprocessor even. When I talk about the Apollo missions going to the moon, they did this without a microprocessor. It's insane. There's more process. There is a million times more processing power in your iPhone than there was on the Apollo craft. <laughs> it's insanity. So computers started to really evolve very rapidly. And actually, if you read about Xerox... Palo Alto Research Center, which is one of my very favorite things to read about. Really cool. The guys at Xerox, and I've told the story in the past on other shows, so if you've been listening to me for a long time, you know this already, but this is fascinating stuff. This it really is. These guys invented almost everything that we still use today. They invented Ethernet. They invented the laser printer. They invented the mouse. Yep. They invented all of these kinds of things, and they did it before Apple even existed. It's amazing. The gra- they, invented, they, 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 were... gra- they invented the graphical user interface. Right, the interface, right. Now, here's what I want people to do. I want you to pause this podcast. Okay. I want you to go on YouTube, and I want, you to re- I want you to Google or YouTube Xerox Park, and I want you to look for the Xerox Alto, A-L-T-O. There's an ad for a computer that Xerox never released widely, because Xerox released multiple computers like the, the Star and stuff like that later on that were quite advanced, but... In the mid-70s, they did a like kind of a commercial that I guess they were going to shop around to companies. It wasn't like for a TV. Of this guy using a computer. This is 1975. He had a mouse, a computer monitor with color, sending emails, printing to a laser printer. You know, all of this kind of stuff on a high-speed internet connection. 
And Xerox had all of this technology and they didn't do anything with it. And as the famous story goes, the guys from Xerox, from, from Park, which is in California, went to New York where Xerox's headquarters were and had the mouse and all these kinds of things. And they basically threw that back at them and were like, you're going to, you want us to sell something called a mouse? You know, speaking and, of forward thinking and Xerox was <laughs> Xerox was afraid that they were going to kill their copier business. Yeah. Which is unbelievable. That was exactly what it is, what it was. But these were more primitive machines that didn't do much. You had to type in your commands and all these kinds of things. There was no interface. The idea that you used a computer with no graphics, with no mouse and stuff. That was a real thing. I used computers like that when I was a kid. So very rapidly, these things started to happen. And That's before amazing. you knew it, people had computers in their homes. I mean, this was starting in the late 70s and it's early unbelievable. 80s. And so the early Internet. You know, DNS, which is domain name system, which we still use today. So .gov, .us, .that start. Do you want to know, did you have any guess of what year that started? This was before the World Wide Web was even invented. That's amazing. No, I have, I have no guess. Late 70s? 1983. But originally, you would access a network, a foreign network of some sort from whatever device you were using, probably a mainframe computer, a punch card, whatever, by putting in a, compl a complicated series of digits that no one can remember. And that's still the IP addresses of today. So instead, they were like, "Let's we can cover them up by saying like you can go to Stanford.edu to get access to these or whatever." And that's where that came from. Ten years, by the way, or you know, nine years before the World Wide Web was even invented. That's unbelievable. And you had things like Usenet. 1979 was when Usenet was invented. And when enthusiasts started to get computers into their homes, these things were thousands of dollars in the time. By the way, so these were almost inaccessible to normal people in the late 70s and early 80s. Even Apple IIs were really expensive. And obviously, the IBM clones and all that kind of stuff that Very ran so. early Microsoft software. DOS and all that kind of stuff, disk operating system. Right. These were not accessible to normal people. And people started to connect their phone lines to them. You know, 56K, 28.8K, 14.4K modems um, were, were common at that time. And in this era, they used what was called Usenet, which were a series of forums. There were, there were tens of thousands of them. And, you can, and they were enthusiast forums. Uh, for all matter of whatever you were you were into. If you were into cars, you were into early Commodore 64 stuff. And obviously, Commodore 64 stuff actually plays in pretty prominently. And we'll get into that in a minute because something from that spawned into something very big. But it was a, a matter of connecting like-minded people to each other, just like on the internet today, but in a more primitive way. And by the way, there are tons of Usenet archives and there's something archaeologically and sociologically interesting about them because these are things from the 80s that are like in the exact format they are and you can go read them. And people talking to each other about things contemporary to that time. That's really the, cool. These are the earliest digital relics that we have on the internet. That's really neat. And it's it's really, really a lot of fun to like go back and read those yeah, kinds talk, of things. Talk about a time capsule, right? Exactly. You know? it, it's almost as if you go to GameFAQs now. You know, my earliest GameFAQs are from 2000. But there are GameFAQs there, you know, that they've, you know, that they've kind of grabbed and stuff from the late 80s, early 90s. And these people, you know, this is, this is cool shit. You know, like this is the early, you know, like a, a, a digital Indiana Jones kind of dusting this stuff off. So it's pretty cool. Now, the internet that we know it as as we know it today began really in like 1990, 1991. This is where the British connection comes in because a lot of people think the British invented the internet because of this. They didn't. Again, I'm, uh, the Americans did. But Sir, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, a knight, invented the World Wide Web. This idea of this more accessible open internet where like everything on it is accessible to someone else. No passwords and stuff like that. And obviously, this became a more protected ecosystem at this time. So it's a shell over the internet. And that's the internet we know today. And that was when that was invented. So if you think back on it... What, what year was that? That was 1990, 1991, depending on where oh, you are. Oh, okay. Wow. It's funny because the internet we know today is less than 30 years old. That's unbelievable. It's the Wild West. Still. Right. It's exactly right. Things move a lot quicker. Internet time seems to move a lot quicker than it is today. But Definitely. I just wanted to set that foundation for I everyone. I love that. I love that. About where the internet came from. And so there was no internet 
in an accessible, familiar form to us until Tim Berners-Lee created the World Wide Web. And really until Mosaic, the very first browser, came out in 1992, that would become Netscape Navigator later on. And that was so So 26 years ago was the first browser on the internet. That was 26 years yep, ago? Yeah, 26 years ago. Wow, I was three. So that's... Man, you're only 29 years old. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, Kyle, not to interrupt you, but no, no, something that you were saying, it particularly got my attention. You were talking talking about the Xerox park the palo alto research center and all that fascinating business a lot of people might be interested especially if you're interested in art and animation and design computer design that a lot of companies got their inauspicious beginnings out of that whole thing they were very uh, forward thinking and fashion forward and inviting people to come out and experiment and pitch them things pixar if you guys look into we won't get into it here now but pixar kind of got its beginnings through that at least partially so, and companies like Adobe and companies like Silicon Graphics all came through that. All came th- Guys all came through that with research grants and all that kind of stuff, which is really fascinating, especially if you trace it back to the histories of Pixar. And Pixar is a lot older than people, but you know, would, would, they would be surprised to know how old Pixar actually is and how it got its start. So if you're interested in that, definitely dig deeper. There's actually a really brilliant book. I don't know if you ever read it, Kyle. You could take it home with you if you are. It's on the shelf there somewhere. It's called Droid Maker. It's about two things. It's about how it's kind of a threefold story. It's George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola's beginnings kind of tied in with Steve Jobs' beginnings and the Pixar guys' beginnings and how all three of them sort of merged during a certain era to come together and do the things that they did. So that's a that's a fascinating story. It's kind of tied into the definitely heavily tied into the Xerox Park stuff, so yeah, awesome stuff. Fascinating. I, I love it. A lot of interesting stuff was happening in Northern California at the time. The, the ground zero for this stuff circulating around Xerox Park and Stanford is where all of this shit really started. It's amazing. And even the government had no idea what it was doing with ARPANET and all that kind of stuff. And the, 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 it was the academics that were really controlling it in America and then later in Britain and in other places. Now, here's a few interesting stats for you. I, I think the cutoff for our conversation, Dagan, should probably be the dot-com bus, which is 2000, 2001. Oh, that's, that's funny. I have that in my notes. Because that's really the end of the inter- the first wave of the internet. Absolutely. And any company that survived that are are companies that really dominate the internet today. They evolved to wave two. Right, Survival exactly. of the fittest. That was a big, yeah, that was a big, <laughs> a big shakeup. And and we'll, and I think we'll maybe end our conversation or get to it at some point. But a lot of stuff that was happening in that dot-com, that heady dot-com era in the late 90s, early 2000s are actually ideas that were just too soon. Yeah, a lot, a lot of like grocery delivery, all this kind of stuff like that was just not possible to be profitable yet. People were there's almost no new idea on the internet like that wasn't tried at this time. It's a great point. The world wasn't ready for some of this stuff. Right, exactly. They were getting too ahead of themselves. So here's some interesting stats for you, just to kind of again, again ground it. Okay. In 1993, there were only 600 websites. Wow. So that's 25 93. years ago. 93. Yeah, I had already graduated from high school. Holy moly. In 1994, Yahoo was founded. In 1995, AOL was founded. In 1998, Google was founded. So Google, wow. 20 years old now. 20 years old. It's only 20 years old. Right. So we have kind of the foundational element of the internet. And I want you to talk to me about when you first remember using it. Okay. Do you, do you remember your first access yes, to the internet? And I really what, And what you, think, what you thought about it. And did you think it was a big deal? And so I want you tell me a little bit about it. Uh, let, let me, yeah, I'll start by saying I was mystified by it because I was mystified by computers. I didn't grow up, we didn't grow up with a computer. I never had a computer in my home and in, in our home. And the only, in fact, nobody had computers, grandma and grandpa, our aunts and uncles, nobody that I knew of had a computer that I was close with, except for my friend Tommy's family had a computer. His dad was an accountant and I, you know, he had it down in his finished basement 
and we would play games on it. Like I remember playing like Karataka and the Transformer games and stuff like that. I don't know if you know what's funny. I don't know if he had a Commodore sixty four. I don't think so. M- Might have been an Apple II. There was that, and in the eighties, and I also remember using our school libraries in our elementary school and my intermediate school had Apple twos and we would use them. We would have like labs or we go to the library once a week and play games and try to familiarize ourselves with it. But the computer, I'll be really honest with you. The computer always really confused me a lot. It really was always like this mythical, mystical thing. And I was like, what is it? Okay. I know I'm kind of playing the game, but I don't understand what this thing is. And I wasn't really that interested, you know, floppy disks and stuff, but I wasn't really that interested in it. And, I went to school. I left for college in 94. I went to art school. And I I was on a very traditional animation track. But the computer was already becoming a thing. And art, we had a silicon, we had a CGI lab, a silicon graphics machine lab. And we were, you were able to sort of take a traditional animation track at that time or a CG animation track, which ought, the software we were using at that time was 3D Studio Max. But regardless of which track you took, you had to take a little bit of the other thing. So I was required to take 3D Studio Max classes. I was never so confused in my entire life because I had no familiar, familiarity with computers whatsoever. And the software itself was very hard. The interface was almost impossible to learn it. I was, I was just not built for it. I wasn't ready for it. And the internet still wasn't a thing until I remember being down in the computer labs in the basement of our school next to the library. There weren't workstation labs because their graphic designers had their Mac. You know, at that time they had their their uh, their sort of Mac rooms. We had the 3D Studio Max suites. We had the CGI suites, but um, upstairs with the Silicon Graphics on the eighth floor of the school, I remember. But downstairs there was a computer lab i never really knew what it was but it was the internet what it was it was, uh, it was probably kyle probably like 40 machines that were dedicated to the internet and there was, it was always packed and i was like what is this place it wasn't a classroom it was just a place where students could go and use the internet i did, had no I, ha, I had absolutely no idea what this was i had no clue but by the time i was ramping up to graduate and we were doing like we were working on our thesis film we had a collective at that time we were forced, not forced, but we were encouraged to do a thesis film together and take on a role, like do a project together. You're the background designer. You're the animation director. You're an animator and so on and so forth. So that's how we handled our thesis films. We were doing that and we were getting ready for our portfolio reviews. And there were some tech savvy teachers that were hipping us to the internet and hipping us to email basically saying as you get your in, as you get your business cards and your resumes and your books ready your portfolios and your demo reels which by the way you know super flashback we were making our demo reels on vhs tapes using pencil test machines and an oxberry camera i mean we were still this was the really a fascinating period the mid 90s because it was really the transitional between like as you were saying earlier the analog and the digital but they were saying you guys have to have and you got to set yourself up as part of selling yourself and trying to get a job in the workplace. You have to set yourself up with an email address. And that's how it started for me. We had to have email addresses on our business card. And I didn't own a computer in college, but my friend Brian, who I roommate, I grew up with him on Long Island and he was my roommate also in Philly. He was a graphic design student at the same school. He had a Mac and he had he so and he had the internet and he had access to email so i used his computer 
to check my email. And not even to get too far ahead, I didn't own my first computer until 2000. It was either 2000 or 2001. That's when I owned my first computer. And, you know, I'll, I'll talk more about that. But that's when I owned, that's when I had access to my own computer. So I went through college, all through college, and two years after college of living in Connecticut in my own apartment without having a computer. Now, I had a computer at work on my first job, and that's where I started using, that's where I really started using the internet. And that's where I really started using email. And that was my that was my whole beginnings with it. Yeah, we didn't have a computer. You were kind of off at college. I wrote this down in my notes because I, I'm not entirely sure what year it was. Okay. But it was either in 1993 or 1994. Dad got a computer, and it was a it was it's a brand it's a, called Magitronic. It's a brand you will never find. I have no wow. idea what I don't remember that computer. What the fuck it was, <laughs> and it was this this um. It was a 486, so pre-Pentium machine. Couldn't wow. do very much. And it came, I remember it came packed in with Doom. Our cousin, Arnold, was really into computers. And he was like, a, he was he, he actually works at, a, he's actually the, the CTO of a huge company now on Long Island. But he, uh, at the time, was like kind of our conduit to that technological era. And dad had gone... You know, dad got hurt in a fire and kind of was working, you know, what they call light duty at the firehouse and was going back to college, Empire State at the time. And he needed a computer for his papers and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Oh, oh, it wasn't even connected to the internet. We didn't connect this thing to the internet. He just had a, he had a dot matrix printer, which is ancient. And he had, yeah, this 486 that just had like Microsoft Word on it or Microsoft, it might even be Microsoft Works and just some other rudimentary things. And it had Doom on it, I remember, because that was like the first PC game I oh, really immersed myself. Yeah, they, uh... I think Arnold kind of stuck Doom on there for me. It was in Dad's bedroom, and it was it was this it was this machine that that was very mysterious. Again, you had computer labs in school, and I don't know if you remember this, Dagan. In Brookhaven Elementary, where we went, we both went to Brookhaven Elementary School. There was a computer lab in Brookhaven Elementary that was in a in a room, kind of in the center of the school, and it had a skylight in at the top of it. And it was kind of like this perfect square with okay. desks all around it, all okay. these Apple IIs lined up, and. I just had this very vivid memory. Yeah, we'd go there once a week or once every other week or whatever. Yeah. I was in elementary school to play Oregon Trail or whatever they would do. And they would take the same <laughs> floppy disk and in a clockwise fashion, go into every computer, put the disk in, press a button to load it, remove it, do it. Like the, that's what the computer teacher did. God, that was pretty I much all. The, and then the that. computer teacher would just walk around in case anyone was, was crashing or something like that. I guess the telegraph at this time was these things are important. These things are becoming important and we should probably expose our children to them in school. But no one was really talking quite about – and maybe I just don't remember, but I don't remember everyone saying like these things are really fucking important because I don't think anyone really knew outside of very specific industries like Wall Street, for instance, like was one of the first really um, adopters of, of early interconnected technologies and personal computers. It was sure. essential for what they were doing. Yeah. And revolutionized the market in the late 70s and early 80s. And there were certain other things like architects were really early in on it. And, you know, like you said, accountants and people that crunch numbers because suddenly they didn't have to have a, a calculator or a number, a number machine on their, on their, you know, on their desk anymore. It's amazing. And all these kinds of things. But otherwise, like they were not really useful. They were these, they were, they were these kind of dubious toys that you can do things on, but no one really. Yeah. We never heard, you know, we heard it's a toy. It's a toy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 91, 92, we were taking word processing and typing classes on, on typewriters 
in school in high school right because you know? because that because word processing wasn't you know and there we had a you know we did have a word processor i don't know if you remember yes, that we did we had an old typewriter and then on this cart that moved around that dad probably got from some fucking rant dad got everything in new york city from some decrepit building <laughs> like our banisters and all sorts of weird shit so dad like he, he had some like some cart that came from somewhere and it had we had like a word processor and it was really quite complicated it was really quite amazing because when you used to type on a typewriter if you made a mistake you had a Go back. You can either like do the X thing on it, or you like used whiteout. But on this, you could type out the entire line. There was like enough memory on this like little LED screen to type out a line, and yes. then you could like go over it, then you hit it, and then it like printed it, and then it went to the next line. It was like a brother. It was it a brother? Yeah, something yeah. like that. Something like that. Something like that. Amazing. And that was like that was like very like wow. This is a, such a step up. So tech. And I, and I remember it was a mechanical keyboard, so I remember being obsessed with pressing the buttons. I love pressing the buttons. I was impressed with calculator watches until like ninety five. Right. You know, yeah. I was like, wow, that's a calculator and a watch. Like, it's unbelievable. Very cool. Very useful. You can you can crunch your uh, tip numbers there at the restaurant. Now, there's a few there's a few memories that I have to th- throw in here as well. Not only the dad's computer, not only that early, not only that early access to the the computer lab and all those kinds of things. And then like your ancillary friends that did have a computer. But again, it didn't even seem that important to them. Like the people that I knew that had them. My when I lived in Maine. I lived in Maine from 93 to 96 and with my mom. And on summers, I'd move home to Long Island to be with my dad. But I had a friend named Jason. Jason was older than me. He, I was in fifth grade when Jason was in eighth grade. And for my for two years, he and I were really close. And it's a pretty big ga- gap in age. But he was, he, was an, he was a new kid in the area. He was from like Southern California, kind of like the surfer kid. Didn't really have any friends. It's kind of sad when you think about it. He was a really nice kid. Later on, we traded. I traded my Super Nintendo to him for his Genesis, and mom, wow. mom flipped out, and like went and got my Super Nintendo back. Is that when you started hating Gen- Sega? No, I don't know what. I think I all I cared about was playing Fantasy Star and like Shinobi. Oh, so good, both so good. But it was like mom saved me from making a massive blunder without even knowing that she was saving me from making a massive blunder. So this kid Jason had a beautiful PC. It wasn't a it wasn't a Macintosh at the time. Those Power Macs in the middle of the middle of the nineteen nineties. He had a PC and he had the internet. He had he had what I realized at that time was he had, he later had AOL, but he had like Prodigy and stuff like that, like really early ISP stuff. And I was a huge and I am a huge hockey fan. And I remember to impress me or to like kind of get me in on like why this is important. He would go to like these websites and like print out the standings, like up to the minute standings for oh, me, and bring them cool. to school and give them to me and stuff like that. And it was really cool. Do you have a la- was it laser printer at that point? Or I not think, even yet. I don't think it was a laser printer. I think it was an inkjet. So kind inkjet, of like, so kind of like in the middle, right? Sure. That was like my early access. I remember he had like this loft bedroom. We used to hang out there all the time. His mom was really nice. He, his parents were divorced, whatever. He had like a little sister and stuff. And we would just play video games and go on the internet. I don't really remember the specific things other than the hockey stuff that we would do. It was just like this amazing thing where it was like, what's the weather? You know, whatever the case might be. Like, it was just amazing that you could just kind of ask this thing questions, basically. So that was my early access, my, my early uh, exposure to the internet. We got the internet in New Hampshire. What? So I moved to New Hampshire in 1996. Lived there for two years. 96, right. And mom bought a computer. A Sony Vio. And I was there. We bought it at Circuit City in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And we bought... Mom spent $3,200 on this thing. I remember it. Wow. And it... Which is a lot of money then. It's a lot of money now. That is. That's more like five grand today. And mom, by the way, didn't have a lot of money. So I don't know... You know, I don't know where this money came from or whatever. But, you know, she was a, she was kind of like an executive flight attendant at this... Uh, at a small, like, commuter airline that was owned by Delta. And... We bought this computer in 1990. It was very early 1996. Sony Vio was gray. And the machine, I wrote down the specs because I think I remember the specs of the machine somewhat well. 128 megabytes of RAM. 1.2 gigabyte hard drive. 
and a 28.8K internal modem. Big for the time. Right. People have to remember that some computers didn't even have internal modems. A lot of computers had external modems at the time as well. Dad's computer that we talked about, the Magitronic, later on, and I'll get back to that, had had an external 28K and then an external 56K modem because there wasn't even a modem built into the 486 computer. And our original internet service provider was this thing, this local thing called TTLC, TTLC ttlc.net. And so we had this email address or whatever. And that was the year, it was 22 years ago, when I was like, holy God almighty, what the fuck is this thing? It came with this whole suite of games, amazing games. That's when I was exposed to uh, Space Cadet Pinball and Chips Challenge and all these awesome, Mech Warrior, all of these cool games on it. And access to this early primitive internet, not even through AOL at the time. AOL existed by this time and most people had AOL. And it's funny because in the early 2000s, it was uncool to have AOL, but in the mid nineties, it was, it was cool to have AOL. And if oh, you had, see, like, I don't even remember that. And if you had like some sort of third party, like local internet provider, that was probably cheaper. If you had net zero or something like that, which people don't remember net zero was a free internet service provider. You just had to keep ads on your, on your screen while you were using the internet. It's amazing. It was, it it opened this whole new world. To what me. a time. It opened, it opened this whole new world to me. And it was, it was an amazing sort of, of situation that, we, I, I just, it changed my life. Yeah. And now it's easy to say that the internet changed everyone's life, but I, I feel like I saw something in the internet that not everyone did. And it was something that dad acknowledged when I graduated from college, which I really, and I've said this before that I really appreciated it. He was like, I had no idea why you were so obsessed with these things. As he would say, he like, I used to leave my computer on when I go to school. I was obsessed with leaving my computer on the internet when I was in high school. I, I had my own that. computer in the room. And to see how long it can possibly stay connected before I got disconnected. And dad used to get really mad and he would do things like steal my mouse or steal my keyboard. But he always talks about how my keyboard had no letters on it because I used it so much that it was, it was just like, it, it was, was just worn buttons. out. And so he wouldn't, he didn't even know like how to type on it, you know, like where the home keys were and stuff like that. You have to bring another computer to see, to, co- right. to compare. Whatever. And he always talks about that, that like the, keyboard. The, the letters were peeled off like they were eroded away. I remember that. Yeah, you didn't have it. There was no, there was no markings on your keyboard. Right. They were just keys. Right, like yeah, like the shift was just like an S and like half of an H. <laughs> there might have been like a little bit of like some of the uh, seldom used letters like Z, but like everything in the middle, it was eroded. I wish I still had that keyboard. I was really pissed actually. I got mad at dad because, you know, this was probably ten years ago. I was like, where is that computer? I want to plug it in. He's like, I threw it away. And I'm like, you threw that fucking computer away? That was like my first computer. Yeah, that's that's a that's a nostalgic. It had all this crazy. I'm like, I wanted to see like what was on it, like what kind of crazy shit was on this thing. Wow, you know. So before I tell more of my story, I'm curious yeah. to kind of bounce back to you. Now, how you said you got your first computer 2000, 2001. I remember that yeah. computer. Yeah. But <laughs> it's a monster. But how did you how did you access the Internet before that? I remember emailing with you in the mid 90s, late 90s. And you were kind of on there like it, were you using Brian's. computer. That was using- Brian, strictly Brian's computer. I wasn't even using school computers. I, w- I was never down in that lab. I was mystified by I don't know if I was just mystified by. The operating system or the web browser, a lot of the stuff back then, depending on the computers that we were using, the specific computers in which specific lab or which specific room, there was a lot of DOS stuff going on still. Confused the hell out of me, man, because I had no frame of reference whatsoever. I was re- I was really put off by the computer, I think. It just confused me. Is it possible, like yeah. deeply psychological with you, that you were put off by it because it represented an animation style that was not in sync with what you were trying to do. Is, I there, is think, it possible? That I think true? that's possible. But, you know, I was just thinking about it as we were talking, too. I really, I was, not only was I trained as a traditional animator and a hand-drawn animator, and I came out of school that way, 
although the digital the digital tools were growing and we were t- I should say I should preface it to say we were taking Photoshop classes. We were taking 3D Max classes. We were learning things at that point like software that has gone on to become obsolete like fractal paint and we were de- learning to deal with file types like TIFF and JPEG and all that stuff. This was all this was all to- completely new to us. We didn't know this stuff. Early versions of Flash when it was still Macromedia and before it was even called Flash. And so the vector animation thing was becoming the thing. So the computer was definitely on the periphery. But I really, I honestly graduated thinking I would just be a traditional animator. And my first job was as a traditional hand-drawn animator on paper, flipping the drawings. Now, the technology was coming in. We were working. When I graduated from school and got my first job in 98, CD-ROMs were still a thing. So we were doing all the traditional animation for Knowledge Adventure and all these specific kid CD-ROMs was still Fisher-Price. That was a big thing during that late mid to late 90s era were these things for kids, the CD-ROM games and CD-ROM interactive games for kids. Now, at these studios, we were doing digital ink and paint and stuff like that. But I honestly thought, all right, I'm just going to be a traditional animator. And I, I could honestly tell you by 2002, I never drew on a piece of paper again at work. It changed that fast. You know, we might draw on a piece of paper to do some development art or something, but we never animated on on a piece of paper again. You know, it was all it all it went digital so quickly. So for me, yeah. So for me, early early internet and early email was brought my friend Brian's computer, who was my roommate, and then using my I had a I guess I had at that point a G a G three. It wasn't even G four yet Mac, and that's what I used. That I had my own at work. And we, that's where we would use the internet. That's where I started. That's where I handled my emailing. I didn't have one at home for two years. You know, that's where I th- did, you know, had my first emulators, like uh, Nesticle, early websites that I would frequent. That was all through that. And that was from 98 through 2000, 2000, I guess, not even 2001 yet. So that was my first thing. And then, and then of course, in 2000 slash 2001, I bought my first computer, and it was a Compaq. It would probably cost around $2,500, $2,600. I don't remember the specs of it, but I remember it was a Compaq. I remember it was anything but compact. The, right. I, the monitor weighed 400 pounds if it weighed, uh, uh, if it weighed a gram. I mean, it was like the monitor was massive. This was pre – I don't want to say it was pre-flat screen monitor, but it was before they became – flat screen monitors became prevalent right it was it was a tube tv basically. it was it was absolutely massive it was almost impossible to lift by myself lasted probably six years seven years before i think it just up and died yeah i remember that monitor i remember that tower because when you lived at grandma's for a little while when you were working in the city you had that bad boy up it was there. that off-white yeah that was still kind of on vogue before right. they changed to black or silver or whatever right so, exactly you know so that was my that was my first one when did you start to feel like you couldn't live without it i'm in a situation now i've told the story i think before but when i when my, my best friend from childhood mike pope got married in 2015 he got married in northwestern connecticut in a town called cornwall there was no no lte no 3g nothing going on there for and i was there for four days wow. without the internet and the first two days I was there, I was like, I was losing my fucking mind. I'm like, what is I, – I, it's not that I even care what's going on. It's more this idea of like I need to know what's going on yeah. out there. It becomes a habit. Exactly. But the last two days I was actually kind of enjoying it. And I was kind of disappointed when I went back down the grid because I was like, this is I, – I can get used to this. This is fine. That's cool. But when did you feel 
that you were longing for access to the computer. It must have not been at the time that you were using the G3, the G3 at work and not having the computer at home. I mean, I could tell you that for me, it was 1999. 99? I had a computer in my room. So that, that Sony Vio okay. that mom had, mom got a new computer and gave me that computer. And she drove it down from, like, she was living in Boston at the time. She drove it down to give it to me. And that was I your was, first machine. Then I was through the roof, dude. I had your old desk from your bedroom. Yeah. I pulled out the drawer that you would put, like, your pens in and stuff like that. That's where the keyboard rests. Okay. The monitor on it. There's actually a picture of, I, I'll, maybe I'll repost it on Instagram when I put this this podcast up. But I put a picture up. I had, found a random picture when I was going through my closet at, at dad's house when he was moving. Oh, I remember. And I found a picture of my workstation from, like, probably circa 1999. And that's what it was. And I sat at that chair all fucking day and all night when I wasn't at school. That's all I did. And you wrote your FAQs. Yep. I wrote my FAQs. I was, you know, looking at various websites when I was starting to dabble with porn a little bit, which we'll get into because we have to talk about that. And <laughs> Do we have to? Well, we don't have to, but we're going to. <laughs> but, we, but we have to. <laughs> I mean, that's such an essential part of the story. Like, right, it really is. It's huge. It's, an, it's a really important part of it's the story. It's not talked about enough either. No, it's not because it's so taboo. But you know what? It shouldn't be like. No, it shouldn't be Dude, a everyone watches porn. It's. Period. I don't know why it's not talked period. about Period. But... Go look at go look at the numbers that those websites do and tell me you don't look at porn. Okay? <laughs> those websites do more traffic than like almost any. I think Pornhub is, and like some of these websites are like in the top 10 in the world. In, in oh, terms I of, believe in terms of traffic. That. Oh, I So enough with, the, enough with the fucking dying on your crosses out there. Okay? Anyway. <laughs> And this ties in, this is funny because this ties in, I remember this like it was yesterday because it was so heartbreaking. It was spring 1999-ish. And this is when my friend Kevin, his dad got a CD rewritable drive. And this is when CD rewritable drives were not common Not a thing This is when discs were really expensive to buy. And like you didn't fuck around with them. You didn't like just waste them like you did. Even two years later, you were just like going through them like they were like nothing. Like they were water. You get a whole sleeve. You get a whole spool of them. And so I went to 112 Video, rented, I want to say, Wild Arms 2. Okay. Something like that, which I bought later, naturally. but And I was going to rip it. So I, I bought it, went to this kid's house, ripped the game. I had this thing called Goldfinger that I was in the back of my PS1, which is this really, it's like this Korean or Taiwanese. Total, you put it in the parallel port on the PS1. You put a spring in the PS1. Yes, so you had to keep it open. You had to keep it open. You put it on a real black bottom disc, let it spin to read the PlayStation logo. You ripped it out while it was spinning, put the, the fake disc in. It was this whole crazy thing that you guys it's have awesome. no idea. If you're, if, awesome. you're, if, you're, if you're a younger person, you never had to jump through these hoops. Again. Go look it up on YouTube, though. It's fascinating. And it was raining. And what did I always do on my computer? I always left it connected to the internet. Oh. And I got home. There was a lightning surge. It fried my modem. No, did it really? Yep. And dad wouldn't replace it. Oh, no. And I was heartbroken. No surge protector? It didn't matter. The, the phone line wasn't running through oh, the surge protector. Oh. And I didn't even know that that was possible at the time. I never knew that was possible, I don't think, till this time. <laughs> it, fr- it fried my modem. Holy cow. And I couldn't get on the internet on that computer anymore for a while. Now, we fixed it later on, but it took like six months now, you remember that notebook you found in the basement when we were going through everything? Yeah, of course. Of me. I, it was my Castlevania II walkthrough written, handwritten. It's awesome. It was because that was written during the period when I had no computer access. And I so had, had to I write. had to write it and then go to dad's computer in the office and write it, you know, rewrite it there. Oh, my So God. that's kind of like the, the provenance there. And that was when I realized, like, wow, I am addicted to this thing. I am absolutely you addicted to it. You had to have it. it. You had to have it. Yeah. I you think know? we all went through that, you know? That's fascinating. You know what? I keep forgetting to ask you. Not as a not to get too distracted, but when did you learn or how did you learn how to type like proper type? 
I so there I I remember her. She was an Asian woman. Okay. This teacher. She she wasn't like a faculty member. I went so I went to a, a school called St. Mary's Academy in Dover for two years, in Dover, New Hampshire, and we had you know it was a small private Catholic school. There were only two teachers per grade. That's how small it was. Wow. And so like there were blocks like seventh and eighth grade were together, and you would circulate between these four classrooms. And so you had like the science teacher, the English teacher, the history teacher, and like the literature teacher. And then like they taught religion and they, you know, other than you had gym, you had art that like a person would come with a cart and shit like that. But that was like, the, that was the extent of it. And we had like a computer lab in the, in the, in like the, the, the ground floor that had like maybe 15 computers in it or something like that. And this Asian woman that I don't remember her name again, but she was like, I guess a computer expert or something. She would come in and she would teach us how to type. And that's when I learned about home keys and all that kind of stuff. And I took to it. You learn. See, I didn't know if you were self-taught. No, like you actually prop. You 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 type properly. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, do too. I don't, do, do, no, you, I don't. No, you don't. You don't. I, I never no really idea. watch you type. No. Well, look at the keyboard the entire time. Erin makes. Aaron, no, I don't. I never look at the keyboard. Erin makes fun of me because sometimes I'm like ta- I'm like writing an email and like talking to her. No, you know, idea and like and like and, and like and she's like, "What do you do? Are you actually typing something?" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> She's like, "Come and look at the computer." You know, like, like I'm not. It's not like supposed to be a joke or whatever. <laughs> yeah, like I. It, you got to type properly. It's so much more efficient. I, I type a bajillion words a minute. Like it's yeah, you're 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 quite intimidating with that. Um, oh, that, so you all right? So that's so she learned. yeah. Like the, to, to, to be fair, like the home keys exist for a reason, and and the and the qwerty layout of the keyboard is the laid out like that for a reason. Yeah, of course, and they're all the same universal for a reason. Right. There are multiple kinds of keyboards. Like there's the Dvorak keyboard. Right. D V O R K O D V O R A K, which is instead of Q-W-E-R-T-Y in the corner, the first keys are D-V-O-R. Oh, it has the, yeah. The and that's, I think, in Eastern Europe and in other places. And there's also, I remember encountering at Bellport High School, the high school we went to, there were these old computers like sitting in the corner of a room somewhere and they had sequential keyboards, which I had never seen in my life. Oh, that's weird. Like A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I don't a- think I've ever seen that. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know how the hell you can type on this. That's a little that's weird. Strange. It's like putting in a password in an NES game. I wonder if you put that in front of me, would I even know the difference? I'm just looking at the keys anyway. You would know. You have muscle memory. <laughs> yeah, you know muscle it or not. memory. That's a lot of that. That's when I realized that I was addicted to this thing. Yeah, that's when you knew you needed it. And I think that's when dad kind of, you know, there's funny stories, Dagan. I don't mean to dominate this conversation. Not but, at all. Not at all. I'm fascinated by it. But there are funny stories like dad's 486 eventually got fried. It just wouldn't turn on one day. This is, he got it, ended up getting a compact too around. It's probably a similar one to you around the turn of the century. When did they go away? I don't know. They might still be around. I don't know if they, I don't know. Or they got them. they might have got swallowed up by HP. Yes, yeah, I might have heard that. Yeah, yeah. Dad's Magitronic 486 eventually died, and he blamed me for it. I, I'll never forget this. I was like really, <laughs> I was really mad at him at Why? that time. I was in like ninth or tenth grade when this thing finally died, and he because I was I was the only one that used it, and I try. I remember, I remember it so clear in his office. My dad has an you know an office in in, in, in our house and. That's where his computer was. And I was confused because I was like, Dad, these things happen. Like, computers crash. They just die. They Your, die this computer eventually. Is, this computer time was like eight years old. I'm like, this is an old computer. Yeah. And he ended up apologizing to me for that later, too. Oh, there you go. Because I think he fucked up one of his other computers. And he actually <laughs> did, and he actually did fuck you. it up. Yeah. And I was like, Dad, the computer just crashed. Like, it's done. You know, I didn't do anything to this computer, you know? this <laughs> That computer was so old that we had Windows 98 running on it, but the keyboard didn't even have a Windows button on it. Wow. So if people look at old keyboards, you know, you have like the alt key, the control key, and then in the middle on the left is like a Windows key. And then there's like the, the, the weird print screen key or whatever the fuck it is, the, other, the one that no one uses. Yeah. There, if you look at old keyboards, that's just a space. There, That Windows key was like a new thing that came with Windows 95, not even Windows 3.1 or Windows 3 or anything like that. <laughs> That's how old that computer was. It's unbelievable. Dig, we got some questions here from the audience. Okay. So for those of you out there that don't know, 
If you support Collins Last Stand on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand at the $2 level or higher every month, what we do is when we're recording a new batch of these, we usually record eight, nine, ten of these at a time over a few day period. I'll let you know a few weeks before the topic is, or that, uh, before we record what the topics are, and then you can queue up your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and memories about whatever we're talking about. And you guys gave us a lot of feedback this time, which is awesome. And Ryan Hurley asked a very simple question. Ryan asks, what were your AOL screen names? There we go. I think my first handle was a Yahoo handle, if I'm not mistaken. And that was Golden Arms 24, I remember. G-L-D-N-A-R-M-S 24. Yeah, you remember? Yeah, because AOL used to have a 10-character limit and then expanded it in the late 90s to 16 characters. And then it was 16. Right. My first one was with AOL is what it is now on a different one. It's it's It was Dagan Animates. It's always been Dagan Animates since, the, since I first had an email. It used to be at AOL. Now it's at Gmail. Same thing. My, uh, what was yours? My original, so I, like I told you guys, I had TTLC, so I didn't have AOL until the late nineties. Okay. But there was AIM. AIM, AIM existed as a third, as a third party piece of software. AIM oh. is AOL instant messenger. This right. was a ubiquitous way that everyone communicated with each other. It was a revolutionary thing. It was. And it was a huge thing until how long? What would you 10 say? 10 years ago, probably. Okay. Yeah. Away. Like when I was in college, it was still a huge thing. Yeah. 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 So. You know, you would sign in. There was these very, very iconic sounds of doors opening, doors closing. That syndicated that someone was coming online or offline. You had what was called a buddy list. And it was a capped out thing where you can like have your friends in this list. You added them, they added you, and then it showed you, it exposed you when they were online, if they were away, if they were um, inactive. If they were away, unquote, in quotes. Right, exactly. (laughs) Like you you could put up an away message. Right. Which I always just kept up even though I was on the computer. Yeah. And I would like write like really emo things in it if I was like in, you know, it was like the most passive aggressive way to tell someone something basically. Oh, definitely. Like away messages were like, you know, I would put in like some, you know, some girl was hurting me or something. I'd put in some like, you know, emo Jimmy world fucking message or some shit like that. You could change it as much as you wanted. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so my my original AIM name in those New Hampshire days when we got the Sony Vio was Drax Curse, D-R-A-C-S-C-U-R-S-E, which was a, Dr- a Castlevania 3 reference. Of course. And that name, I, I think I, like when we moved to AOL, I couldn't, you couldn't import that as a name. So that name was like tethered to AIM only. It couldn't be like your AOL, at AOL address. So then I went to uh, C Moriarty 311. Uh, right. And that was like my screen name. Up until I left IGN, I mean... For years. It's funny, in the video game industry, I probably, it probably isn't like this anymore, but when I left the gaming industry full-time like as like a journalist in 2014, everyone in the industry still used AIM. Like, that's how you communicate with PR people and marketers and people in your company and people at other outlets and stuff. Everyone used AIM. And I remember even at the time, people were like, you guys use AIM in the gaming industry? And I was like, yeah, well, that's what we use to get in touch with. Now they use Slack and all these other things. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my screen name. That's amazing. Those are my screen names. Oh, my gosh. There we, go, there we go. Michael Miller wrote into us and said, I just now stopped using my AOL email back in January. Nothing was wrong with it. <laughs> Nothing was wrong with it, but it was time. My wife still uses hers. Still to this day. She must get so much uh, old like Spam junk mail. Oh my stuff, God, right? I can't even imagine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Mark Elfering says, really thought an alien was trying to contact me the first time I heard dial-up for AOL. Was very caught off guard. So tell me a little bit about the dial-up noise. The dial-up right? sound? Yeah. Such a, it's such a nostalgic, you know, bit of audio from our past. I mean, I don't think I had a high-speed connection. I didn't have a high-speed connection at home until I bought my first house, I don't think. And that was like 2002. So, no, it wasn't 2002. It was 2005. 2004. It was 2004. So, previously to that, I had to deal with that 
you know, can you do it? Well, let's hear you try to do it. So how do you? <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, like it's, it, it, <laughs> and what I, what I, yeah, what I noticed. All right, so for people that don't know or want to just kind of reminisce, early computers were connected by phone lines. And this was the thing that was going back to the 60s. This is the way that they figured you can send little bits of data. These were not what we call today broadbands. So they can only literally hold a certain amount of data. These were, these were lines that were, that were designed to hold, you know, originally voices, you know, voice data. But then later, some data in terms of faxes and stuff like that. This is, it's not necessarily that ridiculous that you would connect a computer to the phone line considering what else was being connected to the phone lines. Like telex and all those kinds of things. Like old technology, all, all connected to the phone lines. Because they were all over the country and indeed all over the world. So that was a way to, you know, send data. But you can only send little bits of data on those lines. And I remember Cody, my friend down the street when we, where, we, where we grew up, was the first guy to get broadband in 2000. What did he and have? Cable or DSL? He had DSL. Okay. And which is technically not broadband, but it's high speed internet. Right. And I remember the first thing we did was went on Napster and downloaded 311's Come Original. I already I had already owned that album, so I didn't need it, but it was just I'm like, how long is this gonna take? It took five seconds. Can you And I remember I remember like, I used to before I used to go to school, I used to queue up like ten songs a day to download off of Napster, and maybe they'd be done when I got back from school. Yeah, with your fifty six K. Right, with my fifty six K Sure, sure. Like I'd be like, I want the offsprings gone away, I want, you know, this whole silver chair record, whatever, and that's probably all I can get today. That was and it. And then I would and then I would go to school and then come back and sometimes if one of them failed, they'd all fail. And it was like it was like a whole get <laughs> Dude, the early internet was something else. It was amazing. But, uh, it really was. We were dealing... Dial-up was... If you'd never experienced dial-up, and if you guys are young, you, you're listening to this, you've never experienced dial-up internet. And it's... It was slow. It wasn't slow pertaining to what we are used to today. It was really just slow. It, you know, and that really ties into the porn conversation because... You, you, like, v- video was, like, out of out of the question. Like that wasn't that wasn't something you were like ever doing. Like sometimes people would download. There was like very early late nineties like streaming and all that kind of stuff. Right. But you know it was like pictures and it would download like little bits at a time. And, like this. You know, so tell me about what is p- the porn? You said porn. Yeah. What's porn? Oh, por- porn is a pornography yeah. is a, is is uh, <laughs> is so you explain know, this. It's to sexualized me. imagery and and, okay. and all this kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And oh, obviously at the very center, the very nexus of the internet is pornography. <laughs> Because obviously that's what everyone for the first thing everyone thought to do was like oh porn, <laughs> but it was interesting because we take for granted how quick the internet is today. Like when people are like oh I only get fifty megabytes per second, I'm like oh my, shut the fuck. It was up. like horse drawn carriage to Ferrari. Right. I mean that's it was a it was ridiculous, dramatic to put it one way. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It was totally unbelievable. Now, you know I wanted to center at least a little bit of this conversation more properly around AOL. Because AOL, Dagan, is, it was this interesting kind of, we talked about the World Wide Web being, you know, Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web being a shell over the internet. And AOL was a shell over the World Wide Web. Hmm. It, made it, it made people seem like you had to use AOL. Like, there were people that were using AOL because they thought that they had to use AOL to get on the internet. Obnoxious. And you didn't, but you didn't. I really think people, a lot of people thought that for many, I think my in-laws thought that until two years ago. <laughs> I, really, I really do. That like you need, yeah, like you needed AOL. They're no fault of their own. I mean, it's, it, it, that's how aggressive it was and Absolutely. how obnoxious it was. Absolutely. So just to give people a little bit of, of background here, AOL was founded as Quantum Computer Services, this thing called the Q-Link which was a Usenet type thing for Commodore 64 users. This was a thing in like the late 80s um, and early 90s. And it became AOL in 1991 and started running on, it was only on Apple at first and then started running on Windows in 1991. But 1993 is when the open internet was ex- was accessible on AOL and became what we know what we knew. We don't really know it anymore, but what we knew is AOL with the at AOL.com addresses, the keywords, and yeah. all those kinds of things. For people that don't know, because it was a shell over the World Wide Web, you'd put like, 
late 90s, mid, mid to late 90s advertising would be like AOL keyword groceries. Call 1-800-blah-blah-blah or use AOL keyword plant food. That's you know, how like shit like that. And that's that's how, you, how entrenched it was. Right. It was a search engine somewhat, but it was also like a way for AOL to make money. Like Craftsman wants their lawnmowers to pop up when someone searches lawnmower. So you can uh, use AOL keyword lawnmower and it'll bring you to Craftsman. Shit like that. You know what, Kyle? I never thought of this before. America Online, right? Mm-hmm. This is really ignorant, but maybe, but... So it was only available in North America? This this didn't exist anywhere else besides... I think initially it was only available here, and then I think it was available everywhere because there were... They went to 1 million customers very quickly, nine ninety five a month. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Dagan. They used to charge you by hour. No, I don't it. remember that. They used to charge you by hour, and people liked it because you can like kind of control it. Yeah. And then they like got rid of that in like 1996 or something like that and went to a monthly thing, and people flipped out. That was like the wow. first that you know how we talk about online rage and how like you know outrage that was the first online outrage was was an, when AOL changed their their pricing structure and wow and all of that kind of stuff. But how it, much did it cost an hour? I mean, I don't know. It was like think it, it was a fraction of a dollar. I think an hour okay, or whatever. Okay. And yeah, I think in 1996 it went to billing um, monthly. Monthly by 2000, and this is unbelievable because AOL still exists, but they are they are not an ISP anymore. Right. Like even AIM closed down last year. They were worth $125 billion in 2000. $125 billion. They're worth probably $125 today. Oh, that's definitely not what it was. And they bought, you know, I was looking at some of the things. My favorite thing about the dot-com crash that era is what things were going for and what the things people were buying. And I was looking at what AOL's acquisitions were. My favorite one is that they bought MapQuest in 2000 for $1.1 billion. And my other favorite one is that how much? One point one billion. Oh Yahoo bought GeoCities in nineteen ninety nine. Do you want to guess how much Yahoo bought GeoCities oh for in nineteen ninety nine? Five thirty seven bucks. Five billion dollars. What? Five billion dollars. So a billion, a billion less than Disney bought Lucasfilm for. Right. What? A billion more. Sorry, right. Sorry. Yeah, a billion more. What? Yeah. That's insanity. Yeah. In GeoCities. Yeah. Geo. Yahoo bought GeoCities for five billion dollars. <sighs> And if you guys don't remember what you're, so I want to get into this other stuff, Dagan. Talk lack to you a little of, bit about some of this stuff. Your Geo-Cities. lack of vision is disturbing. <laughs> that's why the internet, that's why the market crashed. Because everyone's like, there's no way that this shit's worth what you're Holy saying it's cow. worth. Holy What do you remember about early websites? Did you try to build your own website? I was just thinking about this. I did. You know, as far as I got an under construction screen, an illustration for an under construction screen. I remember like taking like a couple of days to build like this really cool construction worker. You know, with like the wife beater on the tat and he's holding a shovel against the fence and like behind the fence was supposed to be the website. It was very clever that I designed this thing. And it was like coming, you know, DagonMoriarty.com or whatever coming soon. And honestly, I always promoted early on. I promoted myself with a Flickr portfolio page, which was like, you know, Flickr is a photo website, but artists sort of leveraged it for their illustrations. And, and my blog up until the early, you know, the mid 2000s, I would say. And by that time, like a lot of people know, in many careers, you kind of become entrenched in something and it's just word of mouth. I don't have to go apply for things. Everybody knows who I am or I know a friend of a friend. You know, maybe if I applied for jobs out west or something at places I don't really know too many people like Cartoon Network or something. But once you're in, you're in the circles. You establish the circle. But so I never got I never built a website. I never actually got anywhere with that. What about you? I built my first website in 1996. It was on Angel Fire. Nice. So there were there were three major services that allowed you to build free websites. GeoCities was the big one, right? Tripod was another one, and then AngelFire. Those not about Tripod. Those were the three big ones. I don't think any of them even exist anymore. But 
I was curious about Angel. People, Fire. everyone built their own. Everyone was building their own websites. There, I, I remember when I went to private school that we had a great basketball team, and one of the kids there, Ben, was had a website where like he kept track of the stats for the team and stuff like that. It was like really cool, like dynamic shit that people were trying to do at that time. But there was like this this early ecosystem of of inter- interesting chats and interesting programs to connect with people. I wanted to say this to you. I don't know. You know, the internet today is so open. Everyone uses their own identity, pictures, people meet each other online. But what people might not remember is that back in the day, there was a massive distrust of meeting people on the internet, trusting people with the information. It was, it totally was a 180. And I feel like I was on, I and many other people were on the forefront of being like, no, this is way more normal than you think. Like people were so scared. Do you remember that? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, especially even the, the early days. Like, do you, I don't know if you have any experience with these things. I don't because I'm a little too old. And I met my wife, and I my wife and I met each other pretty young. But like, met the Match.coms and stuff. It was always like meeting the in a TGI Fridays parking lot on like a busy Saturday night. Like it was always like a thing. Like don't ever you know right meet in a common place, meet at a busy Starbucks. It, it is funny. I was just reading an article about that today this morning about how that that culture has sort of changed. You know what's funny though? I don't know if I realized how much it changed because we have kid, we have young kids and now with the thing, you know, with, with social media being even more evolved and things like Instagram and the things that kids are using, Skype is a really big thing still. You know, we're always cautioning them. So, it's funny that it's changed for adults, but the you know what we're entrenched in on a day on a day to day basis with the kids and sort of marshalling them and sort of protecting them. So it, it's like it hasn't really changed. Right, right. Yeah, that makes that more much. sense. You want to protect them from these. You know, there are nefarious forces galore. You don't know. Internet. You know, and you hear about it a lot. You know, they'll do they'll do things. You know, like um, presentations at the kids' elementary school at night. You know, it's cyberbullying, everything from cyberbullying to protecting your kids. You know, identity online to you know being safe in a, in in you know certain games that involved you know social gaming and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's changed, but it hasn't changed. And cyberbullying is a is a that's a still big, a pretty prolific problem. It's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's, that's too bad. That's sad. I didn't really deal with that. You know, like everyone was online, but I don't know that anyone. Maybe maybe people are getting bullied. Yeah, we kind of came up at you know before that was really up. You know. Now it's, you know, now it's the kids have, you know, like a lot of my daughters in fifth grade, she doesn't have a phone yet, but a lot of her, honestly, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging, but a lot of her friends have had their own devices. She has an iPad, but a lot of her friends have had phones since they were in second grade. You know, that's, that's unbelievable. So, and it's not the phone, it's the social media aspect. You know, it's, it's having access to all the things, you know, Skype and Instagram. But she could do that on her iPad, right? She could do it on her iPad too, but. You know, it's easier for it's. I don't know. There's a little bit of a. There seems to be more of a semblance of control on our end with print. Not that we can't do this on phone devices as well, but you know, just sort of keeping keeping an eye on it. She can't call people, you know, which is something. But she can Skype, so it's not really that much of a difference. Right. It's true. Right. You know? So what? When will she be allowed to get a it's phone? It's bigger, so it's more unwieldy. Like she can't take it to school and try to sneak it out. You know sure. that type of thing. We're talking about the summer between fifth and sixth grade, but honestly, I think. You know, junior high which school. Which is now, isn't it? Summer yeah, yeah, which would be going into the next school right. year just to have one. But I would rather her wait till she's in middle school, which is another year away. I see. You know, but we'll see. Okay, fair enough. We have some more questions here that will answer some, some or, or get us down some interesting discussions, I think. Okay. Alex Ball says, did anyone have their own phone line? Or were you guys like me and have to sign off whenever my parents had to use the <laughs> damn phone? This was a big deal and a thing that we have to talk about as well because... It like really upped the ante about phone usage in your house. 
Yes. And dad actually, and this was a very undad thing, but got me my own phone line in my room. So I wouldn't disrupt the flow of the phone usage. If you picked up the phone, it would disconnect you from the internet. People used to like lose their shit because they were in the middle of doing something. It would like, yeah. AOL would like freeze up if it lost its internet connection. And then like, and then like, goodbye. And like, and <laughs> goodbye. I was like, what the fuck? You got the phone. <laughs> yeah. Like all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. So dad got me my own phone line. Did you have, when you were, like, when you got your first computer, I guess you were connected to the phone line, but you didn't have your own phone line for the nope. internet? No, I had my first, I bought my first computer when I was living at grandma's house, actually. And I lived in a bedroom upstairs, so I was using her phone line for that. I didn't have my own dedicated phone line for that. And the first time I ever had, you know, connectivity for the internet that was dedicated just to the computer was when we moved into our first house and we had cable for the first time and that was 2004 right so right. yeah that was the first time my in-laws had their own helene when helene lived at home pre getting married pre to us getting you know prior to us getting married her parents had their own phone line dedicated to the computer but they had also a very old school setup where everybody used that pc that was in the living room everybody just took turns with it they didn't even have their own laptops or anything everybody you know it was helene's two parents and the three sisters and they all used the same computer you know, which was actually really interesting. It seemed normal at the time. Now we think back to that, like, what? Right. What? That's unthinkable, you know? It's un- yeah. almost unconscionable. It's very but weird. It's the way it was. Isaac Sinova says, 13 years old, 15 slash M. I'm sure there were hordes of us 13-year-old boys in the gay lesbian chat rooms talking to each other under the 18 slash F label with no verification to wild times. So what he's talking about here is people used to identify themselves as what you would do is... If, Chat rooms, which is like a foreign thing now. Yeah. AOL, a lot of what AOL revolved around were chat rooms and you had chat rooms for all sorts of interests and you would go in and it was an anonymous thing and you would introduce yourself to the crew, the crowd there by saying like, you know, uh, 16 slash M slash NY. That meant you were 16 year old, 16 year old male from New York. That's how you like announced that you were there. Yeah. Well done. I like that message. And really kind of salacious sort of shit going on. I think that was very common. As people were kind of testing the boundaries of the internet. Because Absolutely. what anonymity does on the internet, as we see in, on Twitter and stuff like that, is it, it creates horrifying situations. It can. And it was all anonymous back then. Like, it wasn't like a hodgepodge like we see today on, on social media where, some, like, you know, many people are using their real names. Some people are kind of like these mysterious shadowy figures. Everyone was whoever the fuck you wanted to be. Yeah, it was it. It was open to whatever you wanted. You know, I think I was already pretty old, so it was like it was just the wild west stuff. It was it had no utility really, it was at the all. The wild, wild west at that point. It, it had was no brand utility. new. It was just a way to test boundaries. We none of us knew what we were doing. Yeah, none of us knew. We all kind of assumed the appearance on the other side was probably also lying. You know, if we were so lying, it was just then fun. so was someone else. Yeah, it was just a game. It was, it was a game. It was just a game. Absolutely. Jeshua Anderson says, "Can you please, for the youngsters out there, discuss how much LimeWire, Kazaa, Morpheus, and with those and with those Napsters." really change things for the internet market or the entertainment marketplace. So what he's talking about are what's called peer-to-peer networks and peer-to-peer networks are, they still exist at like Pirate Bay and stuff like that, but they really were clamped down upon even like 15 years ago. Peer-to-peer networks were invented at Northeastern University and where I went by a guy named, I think, Sean Fanning, I think his name was. I forget. Yeah, I think that sounds right. And yeah, he lived in, in, it was kind of like a, it was one of the weird things Northeastern is known for, even though it was just a freshman that only It's a big thing. It's a big deal. And he made this thing called Napster and Napster in like the late nineties and right into 2000, it was pretty much being killed by the time 2000 rolled around, but it was a way for people to share, you know, any, any files they want. You could share JPEGs and even MPEGs and stuff like that. But really what it was for was MP3s and people sharing and pirating the absolute ever loving shit out of music. 
And in these in these dial up days, like we were saying earlier, you just couldn't you couldn't get crazy with it and like download everything you wanted. You rarely had to pick and choose, and you could look at bit rates and trusted users and stuff like that. And this was a big part of the ecosystem. It was incredibly illegal. Like a lot of the stuff that was going on on the early internet that kids like me were doing, it was all illegal. But like we didn't know any better until people really started getting served. Oh yeah, you know, like through their ISPs and stuff like that, which I happened have a later. Who on. Got served? Did he? Yeah. Did he? Did he end up having to pay, or did he? Sony they... went after him. No, he just ignored it. Yeah, because like these guys were getting the, the people were getting sued for one hundred fifty thousand dollars and like all sorts of like crazy, just insane amount of money. Yeah. For for pirating and for all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. In that wild west ecosystem of the internet. Part of that, a big part of that fabric were these peer-to-peer networks. And it started with Napster. And when Napster was killed, everyone moved to LimeWire and WinMX and all these kinds of things. Okay. And then they kind of, you know, moved off of there to like Morpheus. And then it became more like Direct Connect. In Northeastern, we had a thing called Direct Connect, which was a, a – we had T1 connections at Northeastern, which were insane. Like, th- th- like those are still insane connections. Like th- that's not an accessible connect- connection for a normal person. And so there was a thing – like it was an in- there was an intranet. Which and there was obviously an internet. We obviously were connected to the internet, but there was an there was an intranet just for people that were interconnected with each other, and people would share files over this intranet. And this is when people started downloading like entire the entire run of Seinfeld, or like I remember Scrubs was like a big thing that was being circulated at the time. Okay. Like that plus your music, but you can download whole albums and and DVDs and all this kind of stuff. It was crazy, man. Like it was it was totally straight up illegal. Like what everyone was doing, yeah, and it would like people didn't really care, right, right. Like everyone was doing it, and like no one really gave a shit. Everyone that I knew was doing, at least on. I only have experience with Napster. By that time, I was already in my mid twenties, and I was done. By the time Napster was over, I was done with it. But wasn't that remind me? Wasn't when you got on Napster? It's been such a long time since I've even seen the interface, but you could see the person's handle, and then you could see what kind of connection they had, right? Right, exactly. They, it, it, the Napster wasn't reading and a person would put in what kind of connection they had. So you were always, oh. so you were always looking for people with quick uplinks, like yeah. people with cable, cable or, DSL. or DSL. 128K, I think, was a thing. And too. then they had to allow it. You sent the request and they had that person had to allow it, right? Right, I think, I think they could set it as like being anyone can grab it or they had to do by permission or whatever. Okay, okay. And I was never a sharer on Napster, but by the time I got to Northeastern and we had those T1 connections, I shared like my entire music catalog for the first time with people. And it was actually always really fun to like go to class or... You know, I was staying over at my girlfriend's place at the time or something like that. I come home the next day and you can go in your little queue and see like, oh, like, wow, like 500 people just downloaded shit off of me when I was gone. That is interesting. And I became part of the problem, you know? <laughs> like, here's my entire 311 catalog. Here's like, you know, all my Limp Bizkit catalog and Dredge and all these kinds of things. People would just grab whatever they could. Lars wasn't happy with you. No, no Metallica was... For people that don't know, Metallica was at the forefront and particularly the drummer, who I love, Lars Ulrich, was at the forefront of killing this. And at the time... I was really upset about it. I'm like, what a bunch of fucking selfish pricks. Like they, these guys don't make money off of their music. They make money off of touring. And and if, and I knew that even then, right before I was really even exposed to like the real ins and outs of the music industry, mostly because my best friend was a music major and, and, and as a touring musician. So he, he taught me a lot about the way it works, but it's, I was so mad. I'm like, what a fucking prick. And today I'm like, ah, that makes perfect sense. I was going to ask, how do you feel about it now? No, it's understandable. It's totally ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous to think that we could have done, just we we were just allowed to do that. Take everything for free. Yeah, just take it free. (laughs) Why don't you just go into the grocery store and, you know, grab some, (laughs) grab some goods and just walk out with them too. See, now you understand it. Yeah, it was totally, like, I I totally flipped on that where at first, because I was like, you know, I think as a creative person, and you can probably sympathize with this, I'm used to people thinking that what I do isn't worth anything. And I can sympathize, even though Metallica, I mean, they're multimillionaires, they are set sure, for life, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees, all this kind of shit. I mean, like, I, it's hard to feel bad for them. Yeah, universally respected. Right, exactly. But yeah. they did They did use, I respect in hindsight, 
that they injured themselves to fight a fight that a lot of other bands and musicians were unwilling to fight. Yes. They, they really put themselves out there absolutely at the forefront of a very unpopular, very anti-consumer or seemingly anti-consumer movement to kill these file sharing programs. Because people's argument were like, I bought the CD and I'm sharing it with whoever the fuck I want to share it with. I used to make tapes in the 80s for people. What is the difference? Yeah, you know? that was their reasoning. It's such an interesting, still such an interesting argument. And so Pirate Bay and all that kind of stuff exists today, and it's it's a little more complicated to download shit, but people still do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People download the shit out of video games. I mean, I mean, games is a big thing now. Yeah. Like downloading games. And right. Especially PC games. A PC game comes out on Steam and six hours later it's on Pirate Bay. You know? But, you know, it, I think it's wrong. To, like I've said before, my, I don't know your stance. I'll be interested to see your stance on this. But if, if the company is not making something readily available or if it's old, I have no problem with you emulating it. I agree. 100%. So like my, my stance right now is probably through the cartridge era. I think you, I think you should have. I think you have every right to emulate that shit. I I agree. Like I, I'm, you, I I shouldn't say every right. You don't have a right to do it. Right. But you, I really don't think it's a big deal if you go and emulate a Super Nintendo game. Who you heard? Who, who gives a shit? Yeah. Who you? Like who, who really gives a shit? And if they, and if these companies cared enough, you know, Nintendo first party and some others do care, and you can buy them on all these different devices. But most of these companies <laughs> don't give a fuck. No one even knows who these licenses are owned by, and most of these games will never see the light of day again. So yeah. you're never like you're not hurting anyone. But if you're if you're somehow pirating a, a modern PC game or a PS4 game, I think what you're doing is wrong. And I think that there is a difference between the two. Oh, definitely. There's a statute of limitations on that kind of. So absolutely, of course. Right, right. It's a timeliness and sure. Philip Guglielmo. G-U-G-L-I-E-L-M-O. That extra L is throwing me off. Okay. This era for me is synonymous with the new metal movement. Me too. I remember watching Korn's online show, Korn's After School Specials with my cousin, which was wildly inappropriate for an eight-year-old and boasted some classy guests like Ron Jeremy and Jenna Jameson. This was one of the first examples of streaming technology, and it blew my mind. So... There was streaming, like very primitive, like 240p postage size stamp streaming at that time. And what I remember, Dagan, is Carney Wilson, who people probably don't know. Carney Wilson. Interesting. Carney Wilson, it was a, she had a talk show at the time and is the daughter of Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys. But she was in a band called Wilson Phillips in the late 80s, early 90s. That was like this girl group. Anyway, she was like overweight and she like did this stream live stream where in like 1999 where she got like weight loss surgery and streamed it. And I remember that was like a, that was like a revolution. It was never like this, knew that. It was like this very small postage, you know, you could probably get it maybe you can get it in 480p or something like that. Maybe. If you had like a DSL Why did she connection. Do that? I don't know. Huh, interesting. It was like kind of a forefront tech like I remember that. I remember her doing that being like that being that's so blase now. Everyone's fucking live streaming the most mundane. mundane yeah, exactly. Mundane perfect word. Like everyone's just whatever. Yeah. But, I want to live stream this. I want to live stream that. But she was doing that. And so that was my earliest memory of that. But I do I do also identify that with the new metal movement simply because new metal was so big in the late 90s. Yeah. And I loved me some new metal. You yes, that, yes, and, you did. And I still, and frankly, I still do love me did some Did you new like corn? Oh, I loved corn. Oh, okay. Um, although I was talking to recent, I was talking to my friends recently about, I, you know, I, I saying I loved corn is a lie. I liked corn. I liked Follow the Leader and I liked, you know, Life is Peachy, those early records and mid records. But, there was also a band where I pretended I liked them a little more than I did because it was cool to like them. Oh, okay. I was a little more, maybe not as surprised into the real rap metal. That's quite forthcoming of you. Yeah, like, you know, Follow the Leader is a great record, but, you know, I would rap, I would have lived in a Limp Bizkit any day of the week over that. Matthew Brousseau says, as a 21-year-old born in 1997, I was too young and missed the AOL period. So for my question, what's a positive aspect of the early internet that I missed and what's a negative one that I should be glad I never had to deal with? Mm. What do you think, Dave? I, you know what I often think about? I often think about the extreme, you, and you'll remit, you're not too young to remember this, Kyle, the extreme cost of long-distance telephone bills. 
And some of that early internet stuff, especially AIM, email, but even especially AIM, was a kind of a cool way to keep in touch with people and get back in touch with people. Now, my, <laughs> my experience with AOL Instant Messenger was actually kind of interesting. I would sign on, sign on, put my away message on as quickly as humanly possible so people that I didn't want to talk to would not get in touch with me. And then do you remember at a certain point you would shut that off in order, like I would shut it off in order to like shout at you or somebody that, who I actually wanted, to, one of the three people I actually wanted to talk to. And then a flood of messages would come in of people that were trying to get at you while your away message was on. But many of those, 75% of those people just kept doing it over and over again, even though they knew your away message was on. So they, you know, like I could think of certain friends and acquaintances I had with just dozens and dozens of things, even though my away message was on. But I would say that was an early thing for me, knowing like the price of some of my long distance bills, like early on in college, for instance, that this was, you know, a precursor to Skype and things like that, that opened it up even further and became kind of became staying in touch with people much more financially manageable. But I always dug that. I always dug that about things like AIM. And you know, what's also a funny anecdote. I was fortunate enough to work for a couple of Canadian animation studios over the course of my life. Probably not since the early, not, probably not since the mid-2000s. But you know what? They, those guys were, they used MSN Messenger. They didn't use AIM. It was really strange. I don't know if that was a universally Canadian thing. I think both studios I worked for were in Ontario. I don't know if it was a more provincial thing to that area of Canada. But they, they didn't use AIM. They used MSN. And I remember having to download that in order just to stay in touch with them on a daily basis. Everybody would shout at each other over the course of the day, like, oh, do you have this asset? Is this scene ready? Whatever we were animating. I think I was animating on a show called Skunk Fu for Warner Brothers at that time. Or we were doing subcontract work for them or whatever. But yeah, that was, in, that was always an interesting anecdote that didn't seem like they were adopters of AIM at all, which was really weird because right. I thought AIM was very you know, uh, user-friendly. Yeah, and you ubiquitous. Know. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah. yeah, universally accepted. I think the positive of the early internet because yeah, you didn't you experience think? it is, is I think it was like it was the the heady nature of it like th- it seemed like you could do anything it seemed like anything was possible it opened up this entire can of worms of, of things of possibilities for you and I think the negative part of it is that that same thing it like it wasn't first of all it wasn't quite as expansive and as unlimited as it seemed speeds were often you know speed hindered the expansion of video and the expansion of streaming and stuff until people until it was you know more common and and, and frankly acts lack of to access of, of high-speed internet still limits people today like if you're in a rural area you have to get satellite internet or you have to you know like if you need comcast you know in a rural area you have to pay to get that line run you like they're not going to do it for you because it's there's no other customers there and it can cost like twenty thousand dollars to do something like that. It's amazing. So that's really unbelievable. So I know people that had satellite internet and stuff like that, which is really slow. Yeah, and which is it's not really slow. It's a little faster than dial up, but it's it's slower than obviously DSL or cable. And so I think it's the double edged sword that was the positive negative that the, the wild west, but it was the wild west. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Of, you know what I mean? You know what else? Like I want to say, Kyle, real quick, especially alluding to the wild west aspect of it. You know what I also I also really miss about the early internet. This will sound funny, but that sort of DIY nature of bad websites. You now you go to the local pizzeria's website. It's the slick, you know, 
Whedon and Kennedy presented. Like it's like this unbelievable interactive experience. You know, back then it was like everything was broken. Half the pictures didn't pop up. Half the JPEGs never fleshed out. So you'd be looking at little th- thumbnails of like broken pieces of paper. You know, you could, the, some of the most of the links are broken. You know, you had good, really good. The early adopters had like really good websites already. Then had the really shitty ones. But like I miss those days when seventy percent of the websites were just like these broken. You know, do-it-yourself pieces of garbage. You know, web web design was such a new thing. I mean, think about it. You know, as people learned how to do it and learned how to leverage the technology and the the, the know-how, <laughs> so funny. You know, I right. I miss those days. Yeah, it was so much more colorful. It was it was it was interesting, and it and it made all all the more impressive the people that made something professional on absolutely on GeoCities or whatever, as opposed to you know whatever websites you were using on a regular basis. One of the things that I wanted to give a shout out to Dagan were the the fact that like today there's there are two search engines that people use, but really only one, Google. The other would be Bing, and people do use it. I mean, it's a joke, but people do use Bing. But back in the day, there were – I mean, I just want to shout out a few names that people were using. Please. Remember, remember, Google 1998 was founded, but Google wasn't really a thing until the early 2000s. So, Lycos, yep. InfoSeek, mm-hmm. Webcrawler, Excite, things like this were the websites you use to find things. And – Search engines were of different different qualities and were spidering different things. So if you didn't find what you were looking for on Ash Jeeves, you can go to Excite, you know, and, and look again and so on and so forth. So there was an interesting kind of competitive nature before Google came in and killed everyone. There was an, and obviously Yahoo was a big search engine at the time. There was a com- more competitive nature to it as opposed to now where Googling become, has become a verb. What did you use back then? What was your search engine of choice in that era? I liked Lycos. You were Lycos? Yeah. Oh, I used Yahoo. Always. Yeah, yeah. Always. That Yahoo. Yep. That, that was just like They're in my, on. drilled in my head. They're hanging on by a thread. They're still around. Yeah. Still San, San Francisco. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Like more of a more of a services thing now too with like, you know, mail and so they've evolved. And it's like a hub, you know. And then I want to shout out to ICQ and IRC. The ICQ, I like the literal letters ICQ and IRC. IRC is Internet Relay Chat. And these were like pretty early. ICQ was a more sophisticated aim. That was more globally used, and you had a digit identifier instead of a name. Okay, which was pretty interesting. And IRC Internet Relay Chat was a was a overlay over various servers that could you could talk to people, and and and, and these these were pretty sophisticated programs for the time. Like these weren't programs that people that weren't familiar with the internet were using. So on, um, you know, I used MIRC, which was what we called Merck, and that was different than the servers that other people use and so on and so forth. A really interesting early internet kind of thing that people might remember um, there as well. And before we kind of go, Dig, I want to talk about two other things. Sure. Because this is a nerd-based website with a lot of gaming game lovers like us, mm-hmm. gamers, the internet changed gaming. And I don't mean in terms of interconnectivity and esports and all that kind of stuff, which came a little bit later, but more how we accessed you know, this is where IGN started. You know, this is IGN spawned and killed the magazines and shit like that. For some reason, video games were a major vertical in the early internet that was really important. And I think a lot of it had to do with two things. First of all, gamers at the time were a little more isolated and alienated from their peers than they are today. So they they quickly sought and found like-minded people online. And their technological sophistication allowed them to create ecosystems for people to, in, which to, in which to thrive. That's well said. So video games, it's really... That opened up this whole amazing thing for me. And actually, if you guys look at early issues of PlayStation Magazine, because I had PSM since since issue one, I'm in a few of them. And if you 
look at there used to be things called classifieds at the end and i'm in a few of those and i met a good friend of mine through the classifieds on psm in 1998 and you would go there and say like i have this this and this and i need this this and this and you guys go find it if you if you have those early issues That's at PSM. did you subscribe yes okay and there was also these like class not classifieds but like personals to like find gamer friends and those were like on the last 10 10 pages or so of psm they'd be like on the bottom like 10th of the page and i was in a few of those as well and you would like share your email address and hope you get emails from people. Do you, you have? Did. Do you have them? Yeah, I have them at desk. Nice, nice. Yeah. That's awesome. So that was like an era. Like so, it was digital met analog, where it's like here's my email address and here are the games I'm into. I love role playing games and and if you're like minded, reach out to me and, and you meet some people that way. And that's how you used to meet people. So that's awesome. So I wanted to give a shout out to that as well. And you know, I guess I'd be loath to not wrap up this conversation with how this early internet died. So. And I don't need notes for this because I worked in <laughs> I worked in a dot com for ten years and we talked about these lessons many times. I hear you. the The internet in the late '90s, some people were still not convinced that this was a thing that even mattered, or like that would stick around. That brick and mortar would always be kind of this conquering king, and people wanted to move go into stores to buy things, and that there's no way that people want to buy books online with Amazon and shit like that. And the valuations, like we were talking about with GeoCities and with um, with MapQuest and all these websites, you know, people made like ban- like made out like bandits off these things. But it was unsustainable, and the market crashed in two thousand. Started in nineteen ninety nine. It started. It really crashed in two thousand and went into two thousand one. And it's called the dot com crash. And you guys can go read about it if you're unfamiliar with it. But it really wiped the internet out, and kind of it was like a nuclear holocaust on the internet. Yep. Now the interesting thing is that certain companies survived. And still exist and thrive today. Yahoo's one of them. Google wasn't big enough to really be killed at this time. No. eBay is a huge one that survived. Absolutely. And um, I would say, in a way, that the biggest one to survive is Amazon. I was going to say. And there you go. You know, Amazon's founded in the late '90s, and at the time that that the dot com crash started, they were only selling books, music, and DVDs. That was basically all they were selling. And Amazon, by the way, didn't turn a profit ever in their entire history until like two years ago. So this was a company that just existed in, in the lost territory in the red forever. And then finally climbed out of it. But there are certain companies that survived. IGN's another company that survived. That they, 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 they these were lean years. And if you if you talk to people that worked in Silicon Valley at the time, it was very dark and very dire. And people's lives were like wiped out. Oh, and was, San Francisco became cheap to live in suddenly. It's a mess. And all yeah, it was it was and and the market just collapsed. Like people people lost their shirts over this. And Kyle, that's because should explain i think i'm correct in saying that's because all the investors pulled out of these companies right Right, exactly because you know we have this idea of unicorn investment today which is the idea that we're giving these you know i was reading for instance do you know the company bird b-i-r-d no so in santa monica they're huge and in certain they're in seattle and for other places they're these scooters these electric scooters that are just on the street you use your phone you scan them and then you ride it and then you just leave it you can just drop it on the ground you and aaron would tell me about this right and Bird has a $1 billion valuation and which makes them a unicorn and they don't and the unicorn thing means that like you are given this outrageous valuation without making any money and this is and this is what was happening so these companies would come in they came in bullishly 96 97 98 they're like here's a billion dollars you know and then the company would churn through the billion dollars and be in the red and so this all happened at the same time and so all these guys were like this is a dead end for us and they got out a lot of people lost everything in this and I'm not saying you should feel bad for them or not feel bad for them, but a lot of normal investors, not just like the big billionaire tycoons, a lot of normal people lost their shit over this. The consumer wasn't ready to wrap their head around some of these things. Right. 
I think. Right. It was just too quick, and people were too set in their ways over the how things have been done since, you know, whatever it is, the 40s, the 50s, depending on what we're talking about. So it's just, yeah, it was just the, the ideas were, were brilliant, but people just weren't ready to adopt it. Right. And there were some terrible ideas in there, too. But a lot if you just read about it, a lot of the ideas are like, oh, that doesn't sound like a bad idea at all. Right. Exactly. That's not bad. Yeah. Like, you know, even a lot of the, you know, not, not necessarily ride sharing because the iPhone was 10 years away from existing, but the idea of like private car companies that would come pick you up, like a lot of this stuff started then. It's and it's really, it's really interesting stuff. And it's interesting who survived it and who didn't. It's really neat. And I could talk from an entertainment perspective in the dot-com era because it quickly became, you'll remember, Kyle, it's still, you know, this still exists to some degree today, albeit maybe in a more sophisticated fashion. But early in the dot-com mode, early in the, you know, the internet world, a company's online presence was really important. People like Nickelodeon, for instance, let's talk about children's entertainment, which is something I could speak to. Nickelodeon wanted you to watch their shows, but they also wanted you to go to their sites, play their games. Um, so they designed huge entertainment portals of games, interactive cartoons, whatever it was. And kids, it was designed for kids to go there and spend their time there. And we worked for a lot of these places. And then what had happened was I worked for a big dot-com um, in the early 2000s, and I was sort of the protege to the creative director, one of the founders, and I was the, I was being groomed to be the creative director of this business, which we worked for huge clients. Like we worked for, I don't know how many people would remember this, but we worked for a big company called Icebox.com, which was basically an amalgamation of Hollywood directors, Ron Howard, Steven Spielberg, Chuck Jones was involved in it, all creating online animated oftentimes animated entertainment just to watch on the internet and i remember the world being so you know it was like the producer i worked when i worked in la we had a studio space in west la the producer from icebox would come down she had a little bmw z4 she would purposely illegally park it knowing she was gonna get like a 150 dollar ticket it was like she came in by you know whoever was working there the PAs whatever they serve her like Red Bull martini she would sit around she wouldn't do anything she was talking about oh how's everything coming along her Z4 was double parked she was gonna get the ticket you know it was just like nonstop they were they were just throwing money around like it was like you know you you picture the old adage you know the old image of somebody lighting the money and then lighting their cigar with the lit money type of thing that's what it seemed like and eventually the plug got pulled out you know and I worked after that happened I worked at, I went and worked at a supermarket for three months. You know, I couldn't even find a job. You know, it quickly sort of, everything kind of sort of, you know, the, the, the waters calmed and everything kind of slowed down and the TV companies, you know, we had things going on in New York like Blue's Clues and Little Bill and other animated things for television, thank God. But yeah, that was a really big thing when that dot com, when the plug got pulled out, you know, because investors just saw that they weren't going to, they weren't going to see a return on their investment, you know. They were, they were this, this content, a lot of the problem was this content was all free. You know, people could access it for free. Right. So where was the money going? Yeah, it was the, the idea was brand loyalty and then like, you know, advertisement was nascent at that time. Ads became expensive, then they became cheap. Everyone thought print magazines were going to die in the mid-90s. Then everyone's like, no, print's going to exist forever. And then it, it, it happens to a lot of markets where actually when you really look at it, where like you just have to shake out all the bullshit. Absolutely. I really do implore the audience out there, just go look at these companies, man, that, and what they were doing. And it's just like, you'll be like, man, if I were some of these people that came up with some of these ideas, I'd be so fucking mad, you know, that people were making fun of us in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and telling us our ideas were terrible. Now look, 
You know, we were like soothsayers. You know, like we saw the future. You see, we that? had this omniscience of like exactly what was going to happen, and sometimes things are just too soon. Sometimes things are just too soon. Like we said in another show, <laughs> Leonardo da, Vin- da Vinci sure did try to invent the helicopter in the 1600s. <laughs> um, that's all I have, Dayton. Is there anything else that you wanna you wanna close with? No, I think you did a I think you did a great job talking about that. A lot a lot of stuff, a lot of business. I mean, we have the lightning round. Yeah, I want to do the lightning round. I'm sorry, you know, I'm trying to. I think we're ping ponging a little bit with this season where we have a very Dagan centric episode, a very Colin centric episode, a very Dagan centric episode. I hope that's okay with everyone. Those I think are, it works. I think I, I think I I was I, I I even learned a little bit during this episode, oh, so I enjoy that. I'm happy. All right, let's do the lightning round. Okay. Also, I forgot to start. I gotta keep. Forgetting. Oh yeah, yeah, I gotta. Yeah. I keep remembering to start with a joke, and then I forget as soon as we start the show. Well, hit me, Sergeant. Okay, here we go. So, patient walks into a doctor's office, says, "Doc, I really need your help. I'm addicted to checking my Twitter." Doctor says, "I'm so sorry. I don't follow." You like my wee wee? I do. All right, lightning round. You're gonna be good at this one. This is right on your wheelhouse. I think. I was gonna grade you on this one. You have your red pen. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll grade you. All right, you ready? Okay. AOL slash early internet. Here we go. Yahoo or Ask Jeeves? Yahoo. Cable or DSL? Cable. 56K dial-up or just don't use the internet? Just, I mean, in the modern era, just don't even bother. I yeah, like yeah, it. Yeah, You're doing good so far. Thank you. NES or Nesticle? NES. Chat room or AIM? AIM. Email or phone call? Email. Don't call me. <laughs> Absolutely. Come on, I'm going to stop you real quick there. Please. How much do you hate phone calls? Except for like uh, a few, except for from a few people today. I, I can't stand being on the phone. I, I call stand. you once in a while, just yeah. because it's just we email we talk. all the time. And I'm like, I just gotta, yeah. It's just let me just tell you what I need to tell you. Yeah. And I talk to mom and dad, and that's basically it. I have a few more than you that I don't mind talking to, but yeah, I'm this almost as, as, just as the same way. It's like, why are you calling me? I know phones are t- the phone is tough. I don't know. Is that a common thing? Do a lot of people out there? What about the listeners? They feel the same way. I would like to yeah, know. That. I'd like to know that too because it gives me anxiety. Like, oh, my wife's the same way. I don't think she really likes talking on the phone. Yeah, it's just you know? it used to be necessary. Remember when? Fo- you, well, I just heard your phone ring when we were recording, but I don't have a house phone. I haven't had a house phone my entire adult life. But right. I can't believe anyone has one. Yeah, we have it for the kids for school. Mm. They call the house. You know, I work from home a lot. Right. But it's pretty, I mean, I don't think dad has a house phone in the new house. Yeah, I, I think I might have been the convincer to be like that. You don't need this. You don't need it. Like, you it's just it's just people bothering you. If they if they need you, like, dad already has two cell phones. It's like, if you need, someone That's will true. find you. Okay, where did I leave off? Oh, Mac or PC? Uh, overall PC. There, I went through, like, a 10-year Mac period, though. Yeah. I could go either way, but I still I still prefer PC. I'll be honest with you. I, I do, too. I, I mean, both, I do, too. But I like I like I use Mac a lot at iGym, but I had a I had basically your laptop that you're holding right now. Yeah, it's comfy, but I don't see the you know I'm not a Mac purist. No, Napster or buy a CD. Napster. Now it's Spotify. Now which, it's Spotify, which is legal. So yeah, nice. yeah, my wife loves it. And can you believe how cheap Spotify is? No, it's insane. I would pay fifty dollars a month for Spotify if they asked me to. That's like literally straight up. It's that it's worth it to you. Yeah, absolutely. I use Spotify constantly. So you're not a YouTube music guy? No. Because it's so, it's so, it, the bit rate is so bad. YouTube Red or no? No. So you're not watching Cobra Kai yet? No. Oh, that's only behind YouTube Red? Yeah. I mean, you could get a free month, watch it, and just oh. get rid of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm i not, it's I too like, much. You man. don't there's watch too many, enough YouTube for it to be. There's too many subscriptions. 
Yeah. When, when it, are we going to draw the line on this? You I know? don't know. It's interesting to see how YouTube's going to go. We could do a whole thing on that. Yeah, absolutely. But um, okay, so Mac G3 or G4? G3. Oh. I loved the G3. Dude. G3 that was a great. I, I coveted that machine when I was in high school. It was it was a beauty. We used to use like you know I took Photoshop class with Miss Goldberg, and uh, when I took it in ninth grade, we were using Macs. Probably Power Max from like 1992. Yeah, because that was still that era. Yeah. Probably the same ones that were new when you were in high school. Yeah. And that, at that same high school. And then we were using... And then later on, they bought a whole lab of G3s. And I was in that first class. I used them. And I was like, these are insane. The, the ones with the circle mouses. Yeah. The tiny circle yeah, squat yeah, mouses. Yeah. Oh, man. They were how, I wonder how that's seen by like Mac aficionados. Is that like one of the classic Macs that people say like, you know, that's one of the most beloved? I think so because the only reason G3 even existed is because iMac saved the company. So it's like a it's like a renaissance computer. Absolutely. It was like the high end. It was like the next drug you needed once you got your iMac and were in on the Mac ecosystem. Did you use a G4? Yeah. Because that was when the, they had their giant hard drive. That was the first giant hard. Everything was... Like the, the tower? The or tower. Yeah, yeah. The tower. Yeah. Um, okay. Looking at the keyboard when you type or actual typing skills? Actual typing skills. I don't need to look at the keyboard. <laughs> That's incredible, and you gotta, and you gotta, you you'll, you'll, you gotta just do it. You'll be surprised how much more. If I was gonna ever learn how to do it, I mean, I would have learned already. That's true. I, That's apparently, I'm an idiot. I never really looked at what you, how you type. I guess I don't have to pay attention. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. You hunt and peck. Yeah, oh, I man. mean, but like you said, I think there's a certain amount of muscle memory just from over the years knowing. I guess inherently knowing, but not still really not really knowing. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> not just with typing, but with everything. I can see that <laughs> exclamation point or period. I know, I know, I think I know. It's period, but I used to get made fun of at IGN in my early years for using too many exclamation points, and people would oh, read, that's and people you... would read out loud my things, and be like, "Is this really what you wanted to sound like?" And so like, that's, no, that's how a, it, that's, that's a... how it changed for you. Yeah, because you, I remember you really speaking out against the exclamation point. Yeah, like because it was like, "I want you right," you know. Thank you for reading. <laughs> Is that how you really that's wanted really, to sound? That's really, that's really a good point. Yeah. Wow. I'm not going to mark that incorrect. <laughs> Johnny Mnemonic or The Matrix? Matrix. Red Pill or Blue Pill? Red Pill. Craigslist or eBay? eBay. MySpace or Friendster? Ugh. Blog or website? Website. That's Blog's another post.com boom thing. It's incorrect, Carl. Really? 56K modem dial-up sounds or fingernails on a chalkboard sounds? The dial-up sounds never really bothered me. They were just... I, what I loved about it was... So I would say that were, were, was more preferable than... The chalkboard, on the, I can't with that. But I will say what I always loved was that everyone's modem made a different noise. Like a different sequence of noises. It did. Like, and you got used to it. Like, you could replicate your noise, like, as it was happening. As But then you go to your friend's house and it was just, for some reason, a different thing. <gasps> Even though you're both kind of getting into AOL on the same line. And by the way, I forgot to say, Dave, because you were talking about the phone line shit yeah. before. Yeah. That... I ran up a $650 phone bill at dad's no way. by con- accidentally connecting on AOL to Deer Park, which was outside of the purview of that us. Ro- yeah. Like, out, you know, I could have maybe got as far as like Bayshore. It was I don't too know. far. It was too far away. And dad flipped. the One fuck. town away, by the yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Dad flipped out. Oh, I was man. I was at, in Boston visiting mom when he got the phone bill. And I was like, what? Oof. And he actually called and they actually absolved the bill. Oh, they did. Because he was like, dude, this is clearly an accident. I'm sure they dealt with that a lot. Yeah. They're like, this is clearly not. I think Dad's whole thing was like, "Listen, you either absolve this bill or like we're just not gonna have a phone anymore." Right? You know? Yeah. And he would have done. He would. Yeah. Have oh yeah. We would have been done with that. We probably we would. Dad's the same person who knew just by walking into the house if I had the heat on, even though I turned it off. I, sp- I love the story of seeing him pull up and yeah. running. And he's like, "I saw you run. Shut- I saw you running to shut the heat off." <laughs> That's so creepy. He was nuts. I love you, Dad. 
You're out of your mind. Where do you think I get it from? Or when I was playing basketball and I was blasting music on his dad had a be- always had a beautiful stereo, yeah, like a pioneer did. stereo. He did. And and uh, I used to blast the shit out of like 311 or whatever and play basketball. And then when you'd see his car outside, so yeah, you could hear it from yeah, the yeah, inside. exactly. Like, and then so when you'd see his car come around like down the street, I'd run in and shut it off. And he's like, "Why'd you run in the house?" <laughs> and I had no answer. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Oh, that's amazing. Like you do it hopefully before like you saw like the green yeah. Honda Civic turn like I was looking for because I knew around the time you came. And when you'd see it, you don't like run in before hopefully before you saw the, the windshield street. is yeah, facing yeah. the street. <laughs> my God, that's amazing. Sorry, Dad, I'm letting you into all of our uh, all my secrets. Well, you have a whole you have a whole different period of growing up because you grew up with just Dad, and right. it was a whole different thing. Okay, a couple more lowercase or all caps. Neither proper spelling and proper typing all at all right. times. I am one of those guys. Of- I'm I'm like that in you are in text. I'm like that on AIM. I was like an email. I I feel like if I ever succumb to like not using capitals or proper, like then that becomes part of the way you write. I don't think I've ever seen you make a spelling error on Twitter. Actually, no. If I do, I always delete it. If I notice it, sometimes I make a grammatical error. Um, but and then I, like it's funny because like you read something over and over again, you just don't see the error, which is why you need to have copyright. Yeah, which is funny, right? You know, like there are things I posted on IGN where I read it five times and I'm like, and I didn't send. And it you like, still and, didn't see it. I didn't send it to like you know the I didn't send it to like the the copy editors and stuff, and it was like, and yeah, and, it was, and they're like this is like the most egregious fucking error. Like what is? And I'm like I, <laughs> I didn't see it. Yeah. That's so funny. Now let me ask you about editors real quick, not to take up any more time on the show, but I'm doing a I'm working on a project right now, working for, with an editor for the first time as a writer, and. Are they, what are they, are they expecting to make the corrections? I mean, are they, or, you know, I guess what I'm asking is, do they expect to do some, they expect a writer to be making all these mistakes or they expect to just find, really have to investigate to find an error? No, I, I don't know. I think it probably depends on your, who your, it is. Your, I think it depends on who they are and I think it depends on who you are. If you're, right. if you're Stephen King submitting a manuscript, I think they don't expect that you're going to have any errors in your manuscript. Right. Okay. Last one. CDR or CDRW? I don't even know what the difference yeah, is. Yeah, it will CD read and CD or readable, writable. readable and write, rewritable. I think right. Oh, rewritable. Right. I think that's what it, I think, that's or something like that. I think one can be. I thought. I think people can correct me. I think the difference might be that one of them can be burned once and one of them can be burned over and over. Yeah, again. you could you could erase the data. But that might not be it. I don't really. They might be. They might even be. Right. They might even be synonyms for all I know. I want to say you're right, actually. All right, let's see how you did. Only two wrong. Oh, that's not bad. Not bad. Not bad. That comes it's passing out to grade. like yeah, that comes out to like a ninety-four. That's a great. I'll Very take it. Nice. I'll take nice it. job. Thank you, Dave. That's an A. Appreciate that. Thank you. Well, that was a fun episode. I enjoyed that episode. I hope all of you enjoyed it out there as well. Dangy, thank you so much for your time. Oh, your, thank your you. jokes and your uh, anecdotes and your uh, and your, of course your lightning round and your story about your gigantic compact that you had as well I hope all of you enjoyed the episode as well we'll do another episode in the future about the more modern internet and I want to do one about social media and how the internet kind of rebounded and how it changed because the only way you can know where, where the internet um, ended up is if you knew where it, where it was and the internet today is very different in a lot of different ways than it was before the dot com crash so appreciate the dark guys, web the dark web I'm, I'm part of the intellectual dark web if you guys didn't know apparently so is that correct so I don't know what that means but yeah the IDW they're calling it there was like this whole huge article about it in the New York Times and stuff like that and then my friend Dave Rubin, who's like kind of at the center of it, was like, you know, these are the other guys that weren't in the article, and I was one of them. So wow, Nick. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm part of the intellectual dark web, guys. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to tell you. I'm sorry to have it's to. Badass, dude. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Collins Last Stand if you like what we do here on Knockback, or you like Fireside Chats, or and or you like Side Quest, whatever you might 
like and enjoy. We really could use your support. We really do appreciate you guys. We're working hard on the show and we hope you are enjoying it. So that really helps. If you listen to it on free feeds, that's great too. It goes out a week later. And again, please do consider giving us a review and a score on these various uh, platforms. It really does help us out a lot. We'll see you next time for more Knockback. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> I, want, I can't even make the door closing noise. <laughs> yeah, I won't I even bother. <laughs> Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Harshiv Bahia, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Luke Drake, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fior, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Richard Green, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lewin Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Mike Menzel, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Adam O., Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Park, Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarzen Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Jordan Ray, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Rayanne Scheinabarger, Toby Schutman, German Sadu, Jordan Smith, Riley Smith, Alexander Suarez, Ahmad Tamar, Tam Tran, Kevin Van Ekren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Michael Wells, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Super Shot ST, Casual Misfits Gaming, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Doc2015, and Random Guy Radio.